Welcome to Insights. I'm Dick Goldberg. Our subject, Lessons from Hospice. What can we learn from those who face the end of their life? They just might have a perspective as to what is truly important. They're not as busy as most of us. We might not have the time. With us today is Cherie Milton. Cherie is an ordained minister. She's a licensed marriage and family counselor with an emphasis on grief and loss. She's also a certified thanatologist, is that the right word? Correct. Which is a the study of death and dying. And she's also author of a new book, Before You Go, Stories for a Better Life from Those Facing Death. She's also been working at the Grace, Grace uh, Hospice Center in Madison, Wisconsin the last seven years, working with patients and the family. Thanks for being with us, Cherie. Thank you for having me. You know, I think it might be nice to begin with one of the stories from your book, if you're willing to do that for us. I'm happy. There's one that I can tell in a brief version. Her name was Joyce. She was in her early 60s, and she had ALS, Lou Gehrig's mm. disease. And she had worked full-time, had five children, several grandchildren. And one of the lessons that she taught her whole hospice team was the power of gratitude. And as many people know, Lou Gehrig's disease is the disease that keeps taking. You lose mobility, you lose control of your body, eventually the ability to talk or eat. It's a very aggressive, sad disease, especially in the form that she had. But the one thing Joyce was able to do that was profoundly impacting was just naturally she was able to think of something to be grateful for so on days when she could no longer dress herself she would be grateful for the fact that she had a kind caregiver that could come and she would laugh and say and she even dresses me in cute clothes Wow. she towards the end of her life still had the ability with one finger to slowly type on a keyboard And I'll never forget the last time I met with her, she typed out painstakingly slow, I don't want to die, there's nothing I can do, but I'm grateful I can still express my emotions. And I was shocked that just days before her death, she was able to still find something to be thankful for and grateful for. And I don't think I've ever been quite the same. So just that ability to be expressive and grateful and how that lifted the whole environment of those around her. Where did she get this from? She talked a lot about her own faith, but she also talked a lot about wanting to be a good example for her children and grandchildren. She wanted to die and be authentic, so she was truly sad and sometimes mad that she was dying so young. But she also wanted to exemplify for them a grace right to the end, which was powerful. Makes me wonder how different people are in this period in their life, in the end of their life, than the rest of their life. You know, often we see through a hospice setting people that expect for this end of life season to be very dramatic with kind of what I call the hallmark movie ending where mm-hmm. all the family ills are solved and people come together and there's but sadly the reality is people tend to die like they lived 
If they were cranky and grumpy and hard to deal with through their life, they tend to be similar mm-hmm. through their death. And then mm-hmm. if they're gracious and generous and appreciative um, as people through their life, that's how they tend to face their death as well. So Joyce was like that in her life. She was. That's that's what I learned about her. Darn. I was hoping you'd talk about these transformations. I know. We do see a few. And that's always very inspirational. Once in a while, individuals know the profound lesson of procrastination. And they face that terminal illness and realize things that they've put off and procrastinated. And they really do turn around and accomplish some things in their relationships. Or sometimes they go on trips they've always meant to take. Some people finish up their college degrees. Um, And those are really remarkable stories and very inspiring. Is there any fairly consistent regret you hear from people in in this situation? Probably the most common that I have heard is the regret that they didn't spend more time or connect with their family. And it sounds cliche, but it does tend to, to still play out that people... They really wish they had more time with their loved ones and wish they would have spent more time with their loved ones. And why do they think that? I think they realize the surprise of having a terminal illness for so many. They never expected that that would be their diagnosis or that the end would come so quickly. And they had all these plans for the future. And so many of their plans included getting to a time when they were less busy and could spend time with friends or travel or do what they always wanted with their grandchildren. And, and now all of a sudden it's, it's as if that, that future was kind of stolen from them. Okay, so if you look at someone who's 50 years old and they're busy, what are we also busy with that we can't do the important things? Isn't that, that's, that's kind of the profound question. We're, you know, n- nothing, nothing probably out of the ordinary. People are busy making a living busy trying to fulfill their responsibilities typically it's good things it's nothing that Mm -hmm. we can really be critical of and yet then they start looking at the lives around them and think oh but i wish yeah i kind of thought we'd get here and it raises the question is it just kind of um oh kind of a mythic thing or a beautiful thing to say i wish i'd love more and given more but in reality if you could put that person with their knowledge back 20 years so they could do it, they go, yeah, that was a great wish, but I still have to do all this stuff, so I really can't anyway. And that, I think you make a really good observation. I do think that is the reality of many. They, It sounds wonderful when we read it in poems mm-hmm. or beautiful writing, but I do think a lot of people, and maybe it's a good thing, they, they wish they could have done some things different, and yet they look at the reality of their life and think, but I don't know that I really could have. Yeah. So no lessons. So they, I think they, the lesson is many people do come to a kind of a merciful resignation that they did the best they could. And that, that is often what we see as being a good, a good conclusion that they did the best they could. They kind of acknowledge their humanity and that they made some mistakes, they have some regrets, and yet they look back and kind of the totality of their life review is that they did the best they could. Do most people do a life review? Not a lot, not as many as what you would think. Really? 
Um, there's a lot of that sense of this really isn't happening, a little bit of that denial. Mm-hmm. I'm not really dying now. Correct. Or it's not going to happen today. Mm-hmm. And so they tend to put off really reflecting and reviewing their life. And then all of a sudden it's too late. Because mm, yeah. they're just not in shape. They're so sick they can't Right. Yes. Yep. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it shifts and the symptoms and the decline. And then all of a sudden there's the inability. Well, given that, given you've seen this so much and you've written about it, when you look at people's lives now with what your perspective is, do you look and think, that's really dumb, that's really shallow? Sometimes. And yet what I've learned is I might have that quiet conversation with myself, Mm -hmm. uh, watching a patient or the family and think, oh, why are they doing it like that? And yet I realize you can't push a person to be emotionally or psychologically in a place that they just aren't ready to go. And so there's sometimes you walk away and say, oh, rats, it could have been so different. Mm. And yet it wasn't. Did you see the movie Citizen Kane? Yes, years okay. ago. Okay. It, it ends, the very last scene, this is all about the, the Hearst guy. Right. And uh, his whole life of achieving and driving. In the very end, you see a sled, and it says Rosebud. Yes. And everyone's trying to figure out throughout the movie, what does Rosebud mean? And it's a reference to his childhood. Mm -hmm. And I think what it's trying to say is he lost his innocence in his childhood and his uh, joy of life by driving so hard and being so ambitious. Are there Rosebud moments in hospice? There are. There are. There are those moments when people do have the ability to reflect and then they pursue that and they think back and they start to emphasize on the things that they are proud of, that were happy memories, that were accomplishments Mm -hmm. of real value. And that's a really enjoyable and rewarding process. Why wait till you're dying? Exactly. It's the huge question. Okay, to those people who are listening on this point, okay, what would you say to them? Advice regarding this issue. Do it now. Be intentional. Be intentional. Be disciplined about taking advantage of the life and health you have now. Sit back and reflect. And, and you know, it sounds kind of uh, rote or mechanical, but I feel like you almost have to schedule it so it becomes a habit taking those moments to meditate and be thankful and and celebrate the successes and before you rush on to the next you know goal Um, because all of a sudden you don't know when you're not going to have opportunity to do that and it's so rewarding to be able to say I did this or I loved well or someone loved me well or and enjoying that now picking up the phone and saying hey I I just want you to know you have loved me well and today I was thinking about that and I so appreciate it I mean it just makes life better why wouldn't everybody do that exactly most of the time that's not an answer that's I know but why don't they (laughs) what what stops people from saying I just want to let you know how I appreciate your friendship or how much I love you or what you've meant to me in my life or how I appreciate what you said two years ago that changed something for me. Why don't people do that? Fear and busyness would be my first answers. People are afraid because if we're not used to relating to others that way, it's a risk. 
What's the risk? Well, if I call you and say, I really appreciate knowing you. Thank you for loving me well. I was thinking about you today. You might think, what is she drinking this morning? Uh-huh. Yeah. And then I have yeah. to feel defensive or yeah. embarrassed rather than just freely saying, I'm going to put it out there and they might think I'm being goofy, but I I want to know that I, I told somebody or I spent a moment do you, do you or do you know of people who at 50 or long before they're facing their death have decided to do this and start appreciating people? Yes. And they quickly realize that the fear is typically not an issue because people are so welcoming to the fact that someone let their guard down, took a risk, and said, hey, I just want you to know I love and appreciate you, and I, I've never said those wow. words to you. And then, then it's kind of, you get kind of jazzed up, and you think, why have I waited so long? This isn't that hard. Do you run the risk of becoming kind of a new age queen that people yes. laugh at? <laughs> yes, exactly. You, you know, you kind of think, oh, you hung up the phone, and I'm sure the person thought, what is she into now? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so when you did it, you, you've done this? I yes. You've taken this lesson to your... How, can I ask how old you are? I'm 50. 50. I'll be 51 oh, in a guess. week. Okay. Yep. You're, right, you're right in that zone. Yep. You. Okay. How long ago did you start doing this? A year after I started working at at a Grace Hospice, so that would be about six years ago, I realized the impact that these people who weren't getting another chance, that I, I needed to learn and make good on, on how much they were teaching me. And I started in a much more assertive way. And I did have people, so for example, I went to, uh, I went to a, a department store and uh, the clerk was just so kind and so patient. And, um, and so I made a point to tell her and then find her supervisor and tell them. And, and they, they didn't know what to do. <laughs> they thought I was going to complain. And, so, and then telling other family members, you know, and, and it's just been such a reward to have people then say, thank you for doing that. What does it do for you? I can see what it would do for them. People love to be appreciated right. and acknowledged. I, I feel like I'm a better person. I feel like I've seen another human being and been kind, and um, it makes me feel inspired. Wow. Perhaps more connected, too. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. That's a good you, word. You know, it might be a nice thing to do right now, if you're willing, is tell us one more story. Sure. One of the gentlemen that we cared for, he was dying of a heart failure, and he was in his 80s. And his life and the last months that we spent with him became such an analogy for me. We, he became our patient and stayed in his home in the middle of June. And our first visit as the care team to his home um, in the middle of June, we walked in and saw there was still an artificial Christmas tree up and gifts under the tree. And it was very apparent that the tree had been up for a long time, which at first we didn't think anything of it because he was elderly, he probably hadn't had a lot of strength to take it down and just left it. But as the weeks went by, I realized that that tree and those gifts had been up for four years since his wife had died. Wow. And he never was able to bring himself to open the gifts that she had selected before mm. her death. And so I was, so curious and thought you know i wonder what this is about i believe 
for him, he felt perhaps it was dishonoring to to enjoy something since she couldn't be there to share it with. But it was a powerful analogy for me to think about what are the things in my life that are there, but I've never availed myself of them. Mm -hmm. And I've held back and I've procrastinated and put it off. And that propelled me to make a decision to try to live my life differently to do what I say I'm going to do or the things I always wanted to do or to talk to the people I've always wanted to talk to or not be so afraid to take a risk. Um, Wow. The people who die alone versus family around them, mm -hmm. is there something going on there that's very different? What we often see is those who die alone often have had chaotic and difficult circumstances maybe the last many years and quite often perhaps have alienated themselves from their family. Mm. The sad reality is quite often if no one is around there's probably a reason for that. Um, Now we don't dig into that. We try to care and be kind to that person because we don't have history with them. We can just come in and And, and be generous to them. But they tend to already come to us pretty isolated. And so their death ends That's up being tough. the same way. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. And what about the people, the families that do have a patient in hospice? Do you see them at all transform, the people who see someone close to them die? Yes. We do see family members make amends. We do see family members really take that extra effort and and do even those tangible things, giving the care, taking time off of work, um, the extra financial obligations sometimes that come. And it's powerful to see family members pull together for somebody that they love. I'm wondering if this affects their life like it has you when they see someone close to them die, where they change? I, I think so. Often they report back months later how that death and, and watching that progression has changed them. And years out, I don't know. I hope so. I hope it stays with them. You know, as I think about this, one of the words that jumped in my head was authenticity. Mm-hmm. How does it affect people's authenticity? Which is a whole big subject, what is authenticity? But you know what I mean? I do. Sadly, people who have had very little thought or capability to really be authentic in their life tend to not be able to be authentic in their death. Can you tell us what that means? So, for example, what's authentic? So, for example, there might be things deep in their mind or heart or emotions that they're thinking or wanting or needing, but it, but it could be they don't have the capacity to be honest about that. For whatever reason, they're afraid, or they don't want to appear weak, or they don't want to burden their family, and so they hold back. And often they hold back right to the end, and that's that's sad. Mm, that is hard. Yeah. Time for another story. One of my favorites is a little boy who's, he was in second grade and his older sibling died with us, unfortunately, after a drowning oh, ac- accident. Yeah. And it was very, very tragic. The little boy, uh, when I worked with him as his brother was um, still alive, 
the little boy wanted to do a painting and so he painted one word on a giant piece of paper and the one word was help and I was just shocked and and tried to ask him a little bit about that and as I got to know him then more after the death um, he talked a lot about the help and companion that his older brother had been mm. and I realized how for this little guy, it wasn't just that he would miss his brother, he would miss that daily hands-on coach, uh, mentor. Um, he told he would tell me, you know, my brother always told me which was the right school bus to get on and I'm afraid I'll get on the wrong one. And, and, and just how all of those layers of loss when we, when we lose somebody. Um, it's not just the person, but it's all that they represented to us. Any thoughts? that you've noticed with yourself and with other volunteers on money and success? Sometimes those who've had great financial success towards the end of their life or their families, there does sometimes come a sense of entitlement. Mm. Um, and sometimes we see them resist death until it cannot be resisted and there's that realization that um, sometimes they they early in the stage sometimes patients or families will want to in essence they can't control that the death's going to happen and the person is terminal so they may want to use their resources to control what they can and as the days whittle away you begin to realize what they really want is to stop this process mm -hmm. and that's not possible and so they maybe put money or effort into other things and then begin to realize no that's not even going to do it either um, but you never have a moment where someone who's wealthy goes, my money's meaningless, it was really my friends. Right? Occasionally. Occasionally they really will have that insight and articulate it. <clears throat> well. Yeah. But not usually. Not not usually. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? You you wish yeah. there was more of that? Yeah. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm not valid, making a yeah. value judgment. Yeah. I'm just curious yeah. about, and, and the people who work with you and the volunteers who work with you, how does this affect their lives? The deeply other right I, I think I think again it leaves whether you're an employee or a volunteer it leaves all of us with that sense of what we do for all of us as human beings we have to it matters it it, it we have to not just live willy-nilly <laughs> we want our lives to count and we see that as we work with those who are dying and not getting another chance are people who are at hospice, <clears throat> is it safe to say the obvious, that they're much unhappier during this period of their life facing death than they were before they came? I would say they're much sadder. I don't know about unhappy. Oh. Um, because some of them face it with tremendous uh, joy. They don't have regrets they feel like they've loved well they perhaps can say I've had a long life and so even though I'm gonna die now of this terminal illness I've done what I want to do and I've had wonderful family and friends um, but often very sad because they just want more time with those family and friends but they're happy because they were viewing a life they feel pleased about. yes yes and those who are religious versus not, and those who believe in an afterlife versus those who don't. 
almost everyone questions either the faith that they've had or the faith that they didn't have. So those who've had a faith or a spiritual practice or grew up with a particular religion, they do start asking those questions of, I hope this was real. Do you think this was real? <laughs> I believe in heaven. I hope it. I hope heaven is there. Or I never believed in God. I wonder if if I'll regret that. Or I never believed in God, but I hope I was a good enough person. I would think people who are deeply religious and were forever would find an easier, um, richer period in their life to go through th these months before death than people who are atheists. Quite often that is true, yes. Wow. In fact, just two months ago I had a, a long conversation with a patient who uh, had no belief, spiritual belief, and she was worried, worried if, mm -hmm. if there was an afterlife, worried what would happen to her. So get religion. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting. It's it's a privilege to to be able to listen to them and dialogue with them, and then quite often just say, "Well, we certainly are willing to to connect you with members of the clergy if you want to really pursue this." Now, I know you always want to see more volunteers at hospice. True. But so, can you tell us? Most people live near a hospice, and they could volunteer. What do volunteers get out of it? I think that many of our volunteers get that sense of doing something that not only helps others but is significant. So it's significant for the, the patient and the families because they're sometimes giving actual tangible helps, but it's also significant because there's a sense of there's a, a deeper, more spiritual kind of help in the sense of just being that companion, being that caring presence um, is deeply spiritual for many volunteers and their patients. And you also get to be with someone who's very real when you're yes. with them. Yes, death and impending death tends to really drop the barriers and people quickly become very real and that's very rewarding. You know, you've kind of uh, validated what I had as closing ideas here. To be real, to be grateful, to love, to take risks. Any other words I'm missing that are lessons? Do it now. Do it now. Can we close with one more story? I would love to. I'm trying to think of some of the ones that are the most impacting. Perhaps maybe the last one in my book is a story of a gentleman who had always worked with elderly and terminally ill. He was a psychiatrist in a medical community in Florida and he was in his late 60s and now it was his mom who was dying and as I met with him he traveled here his mom was here in Wisconsin and as we talked together he struggled so much with the fact that his mom who was very elderly was dying and frustrated at his own inability to let her go and he would say I I do this all the time with other families I I help other families do this and he was just he just couldn't figure out why this was so hard and then one afternoon in his mom's room we had a quiet conversation and he just broke down and cried and he said I think the big answer is it's me and it's my mom mm -hmm. and 
when it's us, it, it's us. We're not the, the professionals, we're not the onlookers. Um, it's us and it's the people that we love. So he, he really was powerful in teaching all of us that when it's your own life and your own family, then it's, that's really where the rubber meets the road. Cherie, I'd like to thank you very much for thank you, being Dick. with us. And I hope you'll join us on the next edition of Insights. Thank you.